a familiar friend. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I want us to do something. I want us to personalize that verse together. I want us to take out the word world and insert your own name. And then we're going to read it together. So we remove that word there right at the beginning of the verse word world and insert your own personal name. And let's read it together. For God so loved Scott that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In my experience, probably everyone in this room and so many people in this world have heard perhaps more times than they can count that God loves them. But sometimes in my experience as well, we get a little bit confused about this because we look at it and we say, yes, God loves the mass of this world, all those innumerable people out there. But because of certain things that have happened in my life or are happening in my life, I'm not always so sure that he loves me. We're in this series of messages right now that we just launched last week, and the title of the series is, I'm In, and the idea is, is that, yeah, I believe there's a God and my life is committed to him, I've, I've come to know Christ as Savior and Lord, so I'm in, but... In this slice of my life or this area of my life, I really don't want him to touch that part of my life, or I'm not so sure that he's really active in that part of my life. And so the premise is, is I'm in, but in this area, I'm not so sure God actually exists or what he says is really true, at least for me. That the word of God somehow just doesn't apply in this one segment of my life. Don't touch that part, God. Let me pray with you for a moment before we continue looking into God's word. Father, how grateful that by your spirit you're here with us and we welcome you. And we know from Bible that you like to work with people that are prepared to be molded and shaped and touched. So if I may, Father, I'm just going to pray on behalf of each one here that we would just be open to whatever you would have for us today. That you'd speak into my life personally, but each person here too. That you would shape us and mold us in a way that reflects Jesus well, that's empowered by the filling of your spirit. So that people would see Christ in us and you would be exalted. And we pray these things and we invite these things now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Craig Rochelle tells a story of interacting with this guy that was having significant marriage problems. And they began talking about the, the relationship. And eventually Craig said to him, well, I'd be interested to know what part um, God plays in your relationship. And the guy got instantly hostile and said, I don't believe in God. And I don't want you to talk to me about religion. 
And so Craig respected his wishes, and he continued to talk to him about the marriage situation, but he didn't reference God again, because the guy obviously wasn't ready for that kind of a conversation. But very quickly into the continued conversation, the guy interrupts him again and says, I don't believe in God, and I don't want you to push that religion on me. Well, Craig hadn't said anything, because he was being respectful of this guy. But he again resolved not to mention God. He's not ready. Maybe later, if I get to know him better, I'll be able to talk to him about this. But for now, I'm going to respect his wishes and not do that. And so he starts talking again, and it happens again, the exact same thing. And it dawns on Craig at that point that this man who's deeply hurting actually really does want to talk about God because he wouldn't drop the subject. And so Craig said to him, you know, Tell me about this God that you don't believe in. And the guy says, well, I don't believe in a God who's always angry, who's just waiting to pounce. In fact, is secretly hoping that someone messes up and screws up and sins or whatever term it is that you use and then take some kind of perverse delight in sending that person to hell. And Craig interrupted him at that point and said, that's very interesting because I don't believe in that kind of a God either. And the guy said, well, I thought you were a pastor. And, the guy, and, and Craig said, well, actually the Bible teaches that God takes a very personal interest in you. And then he walked him through John 3.16 and he said, do you see that God recognizes that there's this rift between us? That he is holy God, and we, and it's entirely our issue, we have made choices that separate us from him. And there's nothing we can do to compensate for that or to pay for that. And so, in fact, what God did is he initiated and he sacrificed everything for the possibility of a healthy relationship with him. And certainly it's true, Craig said to the guy, that if a person consistently refuses the offer that God gives to each person to receive the the work that Jesus did for them on the cross and says, I won't be reconciled to you, God. I won't receive the forgiveness and the grace you're offering. If that person consistently makes that choice, um, God will let them make that. Really, it's a personal choice to let them go to hell. But in fact... God loves you more than you can ever imagine, and he's extended the olive branch. He's done everything to try and draw you into relationship with him. You know, all our life, we've heard that God loves us. Even the totally unchurched atheist that's never read the Bible, that's vehemently opposed to God, at some point typically has heard that God loves them. They don't believe it but they've usually heard it. And for many of us, we struggle. Because as I said earlier, we have this idea, yeah, God loves the masses, this whole mass of humanity, and we've articulated that with our mouth, we've we've contemplated that in our mind, we've heard these things over and over again, but we're just not so sure it applies to us, and we haven't fully embraced it. And so we say we believe in God, but at times we act in this area of our life like he doesn't really exist. 
or what he says doesn't matter. We don't always understand everything that God does. In fact, one of the songs we sang this morning talks about the mystery that is attached to God. There's mystery at times. But typically we don't question this idea that he loves the masses, that he loves people. But then we'll secretly admit to ourselves, I'm just not so sure that he loves Scott. And we find ourselves slipping back into this protocol where we think, I've got to earn my way into the place where God will like me and love me. And we say, you know, Scott, you don't know what I did last night, or I say that. And we think to ourselves, you know, how could God love someone as undeserving and and maybe even as evil as I am. And I know there are people here this morning that struggle and struggle with this idea. And it's rooted in our sinfulness and and often some of the lies the evil one tries to impart to us. And we make sinful choices. The scripture is very clear about this. It says in the book of Romans, for all of sin. So in other words, it's not just sometimes we have this misconception. It's just the axe murderers are out there. or Somebody that's done the really, really horrific, you know, quote unquote, horrific things out there. But scripture is actually very, very clear. No ambivalence here. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I often say this, we like to compare ourselves to other people, the person in the seat beside us or across the room, but the scripture says, actually, we're compared to God. And so we understand, unless we're really mixed up in the head, that we fall woefully short of him. So we've all sinned and fall short of his glory. And so we have this shame and this remorse and this sense of distance from a holy God. And to be honest with you, that apart from Christ, that's completely appropriate because there is this chasm between ourselves and holy God apart from Jesus. In fact, when some of the biblical characters are wrestling with their relationship with God and they're thinking about themselves only and how they relate to him. Listen to how some of them relate. In, in the book of Job, Job says this. And Job was a very righteous man, Scripture says, but he still says this. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. And Job is saying, I'm getting, I'm getting this picture that the closer I get to God, the, I realize, sort of in a sense, the further I am from him. Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, the, in, the, in the New Testament says Jesus is the cornerstone, but in a sense, Paul is really the chief architect of the New Testament church. He wrote most of the New Testament. He writes this, he says, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And so this sense of guilt prevents us from really embracing the truth that God loves us, not because of what we've done, not because we've earned it, because this is inherent in his nature. This is one of the areas, one of the attributes that he has. Also with this is this sense of yawning insignificance, in a sense. And we sit there and we think to ourselves, you know, there's about 7.7 billion people on our little planet, and I'm just one of them. And then there's the vast expanse of, 
untold number of planets out there. And all of this universe, this vast universe that God not only created, but the book of Ephesians says he sustains. How could he be interested in me in the middle of all that? I'm just like a little drop in the ocean. How can he have time for me? Well, the biblical characters, some of them had wrestled with this sense of insignificance as well. You know, Moses, one of the rock stars of the Old Testament, in the book of Hebrews, we're told he's one of the heroes of the faith. When God gives him a mission in the opening chapters of the book of Exodus, this is how he responds. He says to God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? David, a man scripture we know, says, a man after God's own heart. You know, basically the best known king in, in all the history, the written history of Israel. Um, it, it says in First Chronicles, he says this, but who am I? And who are my people that we could give anything to you? Gideon, one of the leaders of the nation of Israel during the time of the judges, writes this as well. Gideon is given a mission uh, by God, and, and his immediate pushback to God is he says, But Lord, Gideon said, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. That's one of the 12 tribes. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least of my family. And they were wrestling like we do at times with not feeling good enough or important enough for God to find us significant. Yet the Bible's very clear that when we are in Christ, we are a chosen child. We talked about this last week, that we're adopted, that we have this incredible inheritance from God. Craig Rochelle says this, and I believe this is absolutely theologically accurate. He said, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. Now, that doesn't really compute in human economy. There's nothing I can do to make God love me more, and there's nothing I can do to make God love me less. And this is because we're tempted to look at God as simply a souped-up version of ourselves, as a type of superhero. And so then we project our own limitations and our own frailties onto God. And Scripture is very clear in denying that, that God is the creator, that we're the created and he's the creator, that he's perfect in all his nature, in all of his attributes, and that he's not limited, even though we don't understand it fully, even though we can't appreciate it fully, even though it has a level of mystery to it, he's not limited like we are. It says in 1 John 4, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. He's the definition of it. He's the epitome of it. And he, you know, even though it doesn't, un we can't understand this, he has the capacity to love individually every one of the 7.7 .7 billion people on our little planet to manage the vastness of the universe that he created, as I said earlier, that he sustains. And he does this because he's God and he has chosen to do this.
And it goes beyond that. Another well-known verse, it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, but God, so he doesn't just talk about this, 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 he demonstrates it, he lives it out. You know, he's kind of the show-me God from Missouri or whatever, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we had made deliberate choices to alienate ourselves from him, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so there's this wonderful truth that before we had any inkling that he existed, while we were still his enemies, while we were still opposed to him, this is the time when he chose to love us, to sacrifice for us, to sacrifice everything, to, to love you. Not just the mass, to love you. In Psalm 139, we're told that there that when we were in being woven together in our mother's womb, he was there with us right from the beginning. That he knew your name before you were born. And he would know how many hairs there'll be on your head. This guy, I don't know who, but this guy listed all the categories of people that God loves. Just starting with the letter A. God loves astronauts, Artists and aerospace engineers. He loves accordion players. I know it's hard to believe, but he does. Ankle biters, animal rights activists, airline pilots. He loves athletes, acrobats, and accountants, even when you're being audited. He loves people from Alberta, Atlantic provinces, and Assiniboia. He loves absent-minded people, awkward people, assertive people, authoritative people, antisocial people, and aggravating people. And then the bees. God loves babies, babes, and boys. Bankers and bank leaders, band leaders. He loves ballerinas, Bible readers, biology teachers, bird watchers, bus drivers, bookworms, bachelors, botanists, bowlers, baby boomers, and boomerang throwers. He loves beekeepers, blondes, brunettes, and people who dye their hair blue. He loves boring people, the beat up people, and the burnt out people. God loves bosses, braggarts, bag ladies, bartenders, brats and people with braces, bushmen, and even Baptists. Yeah, he loves them too. (laughs) There's nothing that we can do, nothing you can do, to earn God's love. You are loved because the God of the universe created you And has chosen to love you. And here's the thing. He's in charge. (laughs) And he gets to decide. And he has chosen to love you. There's nothing we can do to make God love us more. There's nothing we can do to make God love us less. And when we understand this, when we begin to appreciate this, when we begin to live in light of this, it, it, it changes the orientation of our life. It takes us off the, uh, the kind of merry-go-round that we live in life. You know, the kind of merry-go-round that, that, that looks like this. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. 
I had a really good day at work today. He loves me. Two days ago, I don't think I worked hard enough for my boss. He loves me not. Yesterday, I helped that homeless person. He loves me. But ten days ago, I walked right by them. He loves me not. I did really well on my chemistry exam in university last week. He loves me. I got marks in chemistry like Scott did. He loves me not. (laughs) You know, God only grows flowers that says, He loves me, He loves me, He loves me, He loves me. The love of the Father for you gives you significance. Now, because of our life experiences, because, again, we tend to interpret life through the lens that we can understand, at least, we assume love is temporary and conditional. Young girl sends her boyfriend a picture in this really nice frame. She writes on the bottom of it, it, I love you more than life itself. I'm yours forever. Love you always, Susan. P.S. If we ever break up, I want this picture back. It's the only one I have. And this is how we, we tend to interpret life with a temporary aura to it. And you've heard me say this before, but I say it again. It's so important. God's love is utterly different. Human love is, is good, but it's limited because it's always based in the person that I'm loving. I love that person based on this, 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 and this about them. And if enough of those things change, theoretically, I can stop loving them. But God's kind of love is the exact opposite. It's based in the one doing the loving. So human love's okay, but it's limited. God's kind of love is based in the one doing the loving. Therefore, God's love is permanent and unchanging. And I remember when I was a young, young man, you know, like about 100 years ago, um, this verse just gripped me from the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, um, Jeremiah the prophet writes, the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, listen to this, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. And Jeremiah is saying, listen, other people may ditch you. You may lose your job. You may lose your health. You may lose your dream. But God's love for you is eternal. It never changes. Because he sees you not based on what you've done or not done, but based on who you are in Christ. This makes you valuable and significant. Now, don't ever hear me saying that because God loves us in this way that he just lets us do whatever. That's not loving at all. This is one of, the, one of the reasons he gives us the scripture because he says, because I love you so much... I am going to, part of the message of scripture is there's going to be these healthy boundaries. And this is because I want what's best for you. 
I see you through the lens of Christ, but loving you means I'm going to give appropriate correction, which we all need. Listen to this offer from God from 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men. He wants, it's God's heart desire that every person would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. This is, where, this is his orientation. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. It, biblically, whenever you hear these words or read these words, believe or knowledge, it's not just talking about intellectual capacity. It's talking about life change. I appreciate, I understand what's being taught, what's being said, but it also shapes my life because we don't really believe something until it shapes our life, right? Do I actually believe what I've believed? So Paul says to the young pastor Timothy, he says, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom, you could insert your name there, who gave yourself as a ransom for Scott. The testimony given in its proper time. And so based exclusively and uniquely and solely on Christ and what he did on the cross and by conquering death and going through uh, and rising from the dead, we're offered complete forgiveness from God, even though we didn't earn it and don't deserve it. And we're given this eternal significance, but also daily significance because of who we are in Christ. And if you've never experienced the love of God, if you've never, we'll sometimes use this phrase, if you've never crossed the line of faith, not original with me, but if we've never crossed the line of faith, how I urge you, don't, I say this sometimes, don't, don't leave this place without having talked with someone about what it means to give your life to Christ. Maybe the person you came with, there'll be some people up here at the front after the service you could come and talk with or pray with. One of the pastors that were up here, we would be honored to talk with you about that. If you're here today and you're already a follower of Christ, there's been a time in your life where you said, I'm, I'm all in. I don't totally understand what that means, but I'm all in. I'm trusting Jesus to forgive me for my sins. And I've, I've received him as Savior, but I'm also giving him my life. He's the Lord of my life. If you've been there, but there's still times where you're struggling with this idea, it seems like in this part of my life, he doesn't really love me. I urge you to claim the truth of John 3.16 for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I'd like us to say that again. And again, I'd like you to insert your name where it says the world because it's a very personal verse. So let's read it together again. For God so loved Scott that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but it have eternal life. You might want to take that verse and write it on a piece of paper with your name on it. And you could really personalize it. You could say, for God so loved Scott that he gave his one only son for Scott. 
that because Scott believes in him, Scott will not perish but have eternal life. You could do that. It would be okay. You could write it on a paper. You could put it on the mirror in your bathroom so you see it every day and just say, I claim this verse, this truth in my life because God has chosen to love you, not because you deserve it, not because you've earned it, but simply because of his nature, because of who he is and what Christ did. And friends, that makes you the beloved of God.